My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Hello and welcome to the first 2022 episode of Dungeon Master's Toolkit. On today's episode, I talk to James Smith of the Knights of the Smith Dinner Table channel. During the interview, we cover multiple topics, but just a few are modules versus homebrew, handling character death, systems that he recommends to newer Dungeon Masters, and a very fun conversation at the end about favorite villains and making villains memorable. To kick off the new year, we are also going to start the month out with a design competition. If you aren't familiar, we have run two previous design competitions, and both were about creating content for a fantasy desert metropolis city called called Janan, the Immortal Garden. And we are going to continue creating content for this location. And we will continue to put the entries into kind of a PDF zine thing that is freely available on the Discord. And you can actually go and grab the current version of that on the Discord now. We're also going to up the ante. So the design contest prize, there will be a first and second place prize. The first place will be a $15 reward, and the second place will be a $10 reward. Um, and these will be to either Amazon or drive through depending on what the winner wants. This competition subject is going to be items, and we're going to keep the word count a little bit lower. So to do an entry, all you have to do is come up with an item that could be found in or around this desert metropolis. There will be a Google form in the description of the show or also on the Discord, so you can enter it that way. And the main pieces that you'll need for the entry are going to be the name of the item, the rarity of the item, so kind of like a common, uncommon, rare. I'll give a drop-down menu for that. Uh, And then the type of the item as well, so if it's like a weapon or armor or um, some type of accessory or something. And then the final piece, the actual word count piece, uh, will be 250 words, uh, description of the item, and kind of what it does, how it looks, just just everything about the item, uh, and what your uh, dungeon masters may want to know about it. Just a reminder that these entries are supposed to be system agnostic, so they should be able to be used in any system. So don't put anything like plus three to dexterity or, you know, like specific skills or something. Just kind of word those in as uh, things that they may grant bonuses to. That way dungeon masters can kind of take it and tweak it to their specific system as needed. And the contest is going to run for the entire length of January. So at the end of January, I will collect all of the submissions, all of the entries. I'll take a look at them. Um, and then maybe in the next like week or so, I will determine uh, the two winners, first place and second place. And then we will release our prizes. And hopefully we will be doing another contest again in February or shortly after. And before we jump into the episode, I'm just going to read two entries that I have created so that people can get kind of a feel for uh, how these maybe should be worded or just get some starter ideas. The first item is the Lightning Stone. Lightning Stones are small gems with a translucent murky blue hue. Sparks of lightning flash inside as if a storm roiled within. 
It is believed that lightning stones are created during vicious storms when a bolt of lightning strikes a gem or vein of precious metal. Adventurers and treasure hunters will occasionally stumble across these stones when scouring the dunes around called Jinan after a storm. They can, on occasion, be found in a merchant's shop or on the black market. Purchasing such a rare item will be costly. When forged onto a weapon or another object, the stones grant that object some of its power. It takes a skilled artisan to work a lightning stone into another item. Weapons are an obvious choice, using the stone's electrical properties to make the weapon even more deadly. A master gem crafter, however, can graft the stone onto many objects besides weapons, granting them unique and unexpected powers. Lightning stones are considered rare gems. Up next is the Storm Spear, a rare weapon. A Storm Spear is a unique weapon forged with a lightning stone and precious amber. Each spear is unique and a coveted prize of any warrior in Kald's Jinan. The shaft of a Storm Spear is often fashioned like any other spear. It takes expert craftsmanship, however, to forge a tip that can hold a lightning stone. The lightning stone electrifies the tip of the spear, making it a fearsome weapon. When the bronze or iron tip of a storm spear forcefully hits metal, such as armor, a loud thunderous crack can be heard. Those unfortunate enough to be the target of such a blow often report being disoriented and shaken by the sound. Training with a storm spear is difficult and dangerous. The most skilled warriors have even been known to concentrate the lightning into short bursts that leap from the weapon. The only thing more difficult than learning to wield such a weapon is finding a stone to forge it. With that, I'm really excited to see all of the submissions that we get for this competition. Um, one other note is that you can submit as many times as you want. So if you want to create like five or six different weapons or uh, items, I guess, um, feel free to, to do multiple submissions. The more submissions you have, the more likely it is you're going to get picked. Um, and feel free to share them online, like on Twitter or Discord or Reddit or whatever, um, as your making these so that other people can see them or maybe find out about the competition. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have James Smith with me. Welcome, James. Howdy. James, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? All right. Well, I have been playing since 1985. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm one of the old men in the hobby. Uh Started out with the red box of Dungeons and Dragons, worked my way into first edition, second edition, and then I exploded outward into other games from there. Um, I am currently running four different games uh, amongst two different systems, uh, mm -hmm. Savage Worlds and Pathfinder first edition currently. Um, excuse me. But uh, nope, I have a long time of... Uh, playing and a long time of very long time of game mastering is there any specific system that you have felt drawn to since you've you know started to branch out from just the D? &D? Uh, absolutely my personal favorite is the deadlands classic system made by a uh, pinnacle entertainment group and what about deadlands kind of calls to you um the fact that it has exploding dice pools and handfuls of dice not only do i love it but my players love that as well uh, I uh, started with a dice pool game, um, so I have always kind of had that itch to be rolling lots of dice as well, so I, I can't blame you guys there for enjoying chucking a bunch of dice. Thank you. Do you have any 
tips for new dungeon masters? Uh, absolutely. First of all, don't expect everything to go the way that you want it to go. Players are their own people. Um, they're playing characters that they want to play. Always be ready for the unexpected. And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but it is very much a true statement when it comes to running games. Um, beyond that, don't over prep, get your maps done, get all that stuff done, have your NPCs ready, but don't try and railroad your party into the story that you want to tell. Let, let that story evolve naturally. So along those lines, what are the things that you find yourself prepping most so that you can give your players kind of that open, uh, sandbox to play in? Most of the time it's just maps. Uh, I do a lot of my own maps. Uh, I use uh, Master's Toolkit by Arkham Forge Tabletop, and I have found that to be an amazing tool to use just because you can make animated maps. It has dynamic lighting systems and everything. And even better since COVID happened, because it's primarily was built originally for in-person play, but since COVID happened, they now have exports to all the major online virtual tabletop so that's what i use to build my maps and we use foundry to play nowadays uh, yes i just got foundry not too long ago and that has been a blast to play with there are so many features mm -hmm. it has a little bit of a learning curve but once you get the feel for it um you can do some pretty amazing things in it the thing that i enjoy about it is being able to me myself have the license for it and then let anybody join and play so that I don't have to worry about other people like purchasing like pro versions or anything. Exactly. Um, that was one of my biggest things is much like the master's toolkit. It's a one-time cost unless I'm buying extra stuff for it and it's not a subscription. So <clears throat> that was a huge draw for me. Yeah. Those one-time purchases can be nice for sure. When you're prepping your maps or just kind of your, like your next session in general, do you, um, kind of come to a point where you say, okay, this is all I had prepped for today. And then, you know, do you ask your players, hey, what are you guys looking to do next time? And then kind of prep uh, in that direction? Or do you just kind of go wide open and just improv your uh, sessions? I have always been a big fan of improving. Um, I prep what I can, but I've got a bunch of players who, much like me, have been playing for years. So... They really, they're really good at surprising me, and I actually enjoy the surprise, so I do a lot of improv. And do you have any tips that you've learned over the years for just getting better at improv? Honestly, it's, it's a learned skill. Um, it's not something that is that I can just say, hey, this is what you can do to make yourself better at it. It's just you got to find your own comfort zone and go with that. Like When it comes to fantasy games... I suck at improv when it comes to sci-fi or horror games. I I've been known to run for months without having a single note written down, just maps for whatever encounters happen to happen. So kind of along the, the same lines for the maps, are you just preparing like tons of just different maps kind of somewhat aimlessly or like, you know, you have maybe a location or a town or something and you kind of prep just multiple things that would be in that area or how does that process work for you? For my home games, um, I tend to prep a bunch and just keep them sitting and waiting. Um, if if you were to look at my map list that I have in the toolkit, uh, there's probably like seven or eight gigs of maps that I've created. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> for my uh, 
for my shows, uh, which Legend of the Rainbow House Saints is a playthrough using the Savage Pathfinder rules, uh, or Pathfinder for Savage Worlds rules, of uh, the Giant Slayer Adventure Path by Paizo, and then uh, Climate Control is our Reign of Winter first edition show that is going to be coming out here in a couple of weeks. And in both of those cases, I prep the maps that are actually in the adventures, and not as much improv is required with the the pre-generated adventures it's just a gentle steering uh, back onto course yeah that makes sense because you've got the module to kind of fall back on Mm -hmm. and how do you like running the modules versus doing improv um i really enjoy both honestly um i know some people feel constrained by the modules or feel constrained by a set campaign world but uh i really don't because you never know i've run for instance, five different groups through Rise of the Rune Lords. And even with a couple of the players being the same, every single run through is different. And that has made it a ton of fun for me. And do you allow the players to kind of bend the script as they're going through uh, these modules? Absolutely. If they throw me a curveball, uh, help steer them back on course, but still keep that curveball as part of it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like if you've run it that many times, the subsequent times that you're running it, it's going to be easier to kind of roll with the punches because you're going to know more of the characters that are involved and kind of how the the overarching story is connected. So I feel like you would just have an easier time changing those things on the fly after you've gone through it once or twice. It does get easier the more times you run something. Um, It's years ago I used to run... uh, competition adventures under second edition at origins uh game fair and you know you run the same adventure three four times a day for four days and by that fourth day you you don't even have to give any thought to catching up with what the players are doing right that's something i've thought about doing on the server is just running like a handful of one shots but keeping them the same so that new people can play in the one shots um and I could definitely see as I've kind of prepped some of those things, like, okay, I, I ran this one once. Now running it a second time is going to be that much easier uh, just because I know what's going on and I know kind of what the players from the previous run did as well. Absolutely, yes. Um, are there any games or game systems, I should say, that you would like to run but you haven't gotten a chance to play yet? Um, I would love to try uh, Warhammer 40K Wrath and Glory. Um the whole Warhammer 40k universe just kind of sings to the dark part of my soul. And I really love the lore and everything behind it. But it's just between the the two systems I'm currently running most, I just don't have the time to pick up another system. Sure. And it sounds like you're pulled a little bit more towards the sci-fi side of things. I love sci-fi, but ironically enough, both of my shows currently are fantasy. And are they like classical kind of European fantasy or medieval fantasy? Both are currently set in the uh, Paizo world of Galarian. Okay. I'm not super familiar with their settings. It It's a very, very rich setting, and you can actually learn a lot about it just from their uh, official website, as well as the uh, archives of Nethys, which is uh, arc- AON, I think it's AONPRD.com. Are there specific tools, well, websites? I mean, you kind of mentioned... Um, 
Ark and Forge and Foundry. Are there any other tools or anything that you use or books maybe for prepping your games? Um, with the Pathfinder games, uh, it's real easy because Paizo has put out a very lore rich amount of uh, books to just, even if you don't use the game system, if you wanted to play in that world, you could build the whole campaign easily because the whole world has pretty much been mapped out. Uh, beyond that, uh, depending on what game I'm running, I'll delve into history books or um, other such resources like that. Or every once in a while when I want something grittier, I'll pick up like a Jim Butcher novel. Um, uh, he's the guy who writes the Harry Dresden series, and he's got a great fantasy series as well. And everything of his has been great for giving me ideas. That was my next question is uh, movies and um, fiction, if those played a role in any of your inspiration. Yeah. Glad I had a job. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything about DMing that you wish you would have learned sooner? Patience. Um, sometimes like you'll get the players who are new and they'll sit there quietly. And all I want to do is kind of get them to get moving. And that you, you can't really push people. You just kind of got to let them move in at their own pace. That's fair. And especially if they're new to the game or new to the hobby in general, sometimes it can be a little intimidating to take on this new kind of interactive game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in those situations, do you tend to just kind of give them space and let them come in at their own time? Or do you kind of give them little hooks to try and, you know, let them sink their teeth into? What do you, how do you kind of get them to move forward? My go-to is just a gentle nudge. Um, I try not to put them too much on the spot just because in my experience, that'll, that'll drive a new player away faster than anything else. Um, and so I don't like to do it, but I'm not afraid to give them a nudge and say, Hey, what, what do you think you would do at this instance? And let it just let it flow from there. Sure. Kind of almost take them out of the experience a little bit to just get them maybe into a state where they're a little bit more comfortable or mm -hmm. So I feel like sometimes too, if you put people on the spot, they can, they can freeze instead of, um, or they'll just like spit the first thing out that maybe isn't necessarily what they want to do. Exactly. And I I've seen that happen a few times. You said you were in four campaigns, right? Or you're yes. running four campaigns. Correct. Um, how long does one of your campaigns typically last? Do you, ha are they like indefinite? Like they're just going to keep going on or do you have kind of like arcs where they, and wind up and then wind back down? Um, it it really depends on the game. Like uh, for my Deadlands Classic Hell on Earth campaign, which is a post-apocalyptic Western, um, that campaign, while it's currently on hiatus, has been running for, I want to say about 10 years. And that, that falls under the indefinite. But other shorter campaigns where I have a set story I kind of want to tell, typically no more than a year or two. And are these every week? that you're meeting for sessions uh, every other week is what we do every other week. That's still a, a year or two. That's still a good number of sessions for a single campaign. Mm -hmm. um, do you, uh, I guess in that case, when you do wrap up a can a campaign, then do you come up with like a new campaign or do you, you know, get a, a new idea or how does like forming a new campaign end up working out for you? Um, my, uh, Partner in crime, he's he's our other game master, and he occasionally picks up and runs for me. Uh, we usually sit back and we discuss what everybody would, what we think everybody would like. 
And usually we, we come up with pretty good campaign ideas, and we haven't had any major complaints yet. Um, there was one campaign where the players just weren't having fun, and it was just a, okay, we'll stop this one and try something new. And uh, that's been the case with uh, my primary players uh, over the years. If they don't like something, we don't continue it. Well, and I think that's smart, because if you aren't having fun, then everybody's going to get burned out, and then the group is going gonna, is gonna to fizzle out and stop meeting. So... Uh, switching gears when you need to is smart. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you do have another uh, DM. Do you kind of like tag team on a given campaign, or does one of you or is one of you the primary DM for the campaign, or how does that work? So it honestly depends on what we're playing. Um, typically, for the sci-fi stuff, it's typically me. I tend to handle the sci-fi better, although he is going to be running a. Uh, Starfinder game in the future to allow me to play some sci-fi. Uh, but we don't really co-GM. It's more of a, I take a turn, he takes a turn, or I'll take six turns and then I need a break and then he takes a turn. And generally that's how we've done it over the years. And then when you're swapping like that, um, I assume that you have like your own character that you come in and play with when you're uh, not DMing. That is correct. Yes. And how do you handle that? Um, how do you handle that character? Like, especially if you go, you know, you run six sessions and then you swap for one. How do you handle that for the character? Um, I mean, I have loads and loads of years of experience. So I'm, I've just gotten used to being able to switch characters on a fly and I just dive right into it. I, I tend to be one of the more prolific role players when I am a player. And that's one of the ways I kind of get the stress of running a game out is by doing just that. I have definitely mentioned on this before that um, when you start to get the DM burnout, playing in a game is usually one of the best ways to uh, just kind of reignite that spark to run again. Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately, there's a few character classes in some games I'm not allowed to play anymore because of it. (laughs) Um. So with that question before, what I was more so getting at with the character question was, um, how do you handle the uh, like the character not being around and then, you know, like six sessions oh, or whatever, okay. um, and then randomly showing up again for a session? It's actually completely different campaigns, so we don't even have to deal with that. Oh, well, that makes it easy. So you just intersperse. Uh, when you need a break, you just say, okay, everybody, we're switching gears. We're going to run this one this week. And then go from there absolutely yes well that that just completely changes it i I understand why you skipped right over that because it's not even a it's not even a true question (laughs) um if you does switching between campaigns is that kind of tricky for people or is that not too bad you know again like six sessions and then you just like you do one and then if it's like another like month or two before you play in that campaign is that that switching gears is that Take much um, or is that not too bad? No, we've got a really good and solid group of players who um, they all joke that I have game ADHD uh, just because every once in a while it's, hey, I want to play something different. So they've all gotten used to it over the years. And like I said, we've been, the vast majority of my players have been with me for a decade or more. We've only got a few players who haven't, but uh, yeah, everybody's used to it at this point. So we just kind of roll with the punches. And what is your group size? Uh, depends on which night it is. It is anything from four players to eight players. 
So you've got kind of a, a wide array of people. And then just depending on what you're playing kind of dep- uh, yep. indicates who's there. Yeah. Uh, and the age range is anywhere from late teenage years to early fifties and sixties. That is quite the range. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you, with the uh, differences in ages, do you notice any um, patterns or, or quirks or anything about having that kind of wide of an age, age range? Um, the younger folks like the old Monty Python kick in the door and loot everything, typically more than what the older folks do. And it just, it takes a little practice to get them reined in and not derailing the story with antics like that. I, I think that's, I don't know if that's a common thing with new players or, or if it's just a, like a personality thing, but I guess I can kind of see where if you're kind of new to these types of games, I mean, the main draw is that, I mean, you can do anything, right? There's it's open. So kind of coming in and testing that, like, I mean, can we do anything, you know, like how far can I push this? I can kind of see that being maybe a uh, newer player trait than somebody who's maybe played for a while. Yeah, and usually it, they're the ones who run off on their own, and then they find out why you never split the party. <laughs> How do you handle uh, character death? Um, typically, like with the shows, it hasn't, or it's only come up a few times. And I mean, I I'm not gonna lie, I am a brutal game master. For years on the old Deadlands list serves, I had the highest body count just because I. I let the dice roll as they will. Um, But as I've aged and matured, typically if it's a mook fight, I don't like to let characters go down. But if it's an important fight, then the dice fall where they may. And usually there's no hurt feelings, um, at least in the cases of my groups, just because everybody understands, hey, our characters are doing things that are extremely dangerous. I mean, for instance, let's go running into a dragon's den. I mean, somebody realistically is going to die. <laughs> yeah, whoever's in first is getting their head bitten. You mentioned that you uh, kind of leave the dice as they are. Do you roll in the open then for your games, or do you have a screen at all? Uh, it really depends on the game. Uh, like Pathfinder, uh, 1 and 2, and uh, the classic Deadlands, I keep my dice behind the screen just because every once in a while I do need to fudge things that way somebody doesn't die to something really dumb like a really lucky roll by a bad guy uh, that's just a mook and doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things but for games like one of the other games we play is Torg Eternity and that and Savage Worlds everybody knows their target numbers straight out so really there's no sense in me rolling behind a screen and I just keep it out in the open then Oh, that that makes sense. Um, I have I always like the idea of just rolling in the open and then not having people have to worry um, if I'm changing stuff or not, right? Because some of my players can get a little bit paranoid about what I'm doing. Um, so for me, it's just a little easier to just uh, be brutal with them on the dice. I mean, I've been known to be brutal a time or two. <laughs> Um, is there a certain system that you would recommend for new dungeon masters? Uh, absolutely. Hands down without a question, Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. Um, it is, I, I, I hate to use their tagline, but it is literally what their tagline says. Fast, fun, and furious. Uh, 
I am actually friends with the creator, Shane Hensley. Uh, we became friends during the original Deadlands Classic days. And it's one of those games where you don't have to, there's not as many rules to know. So you don't have to worry about getting the rules wrong. And if you do, what's more important is just the fact that the action stays fast and furious. Uh, it's very pulpy. So it definitely catches, like if you wanted to play an Indiana Jones game, it definitely captures the Indiana Jones feel. Um, but like I, like I said earlier, my Giant Slayer campaign, that's we're using the Savage, Pathfinder for Savage Worlds rules. And so far, it has made for lots of fun things like the uh, human fighter getting launched out of a catapult. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's honestly a really easy system to pick up and learn. But for those of us who like a little bit of crunch, it does have some crunch if you dig deeper into the rules and look for the more obscure stuff. Sure. Um, I think I've maybe briefly skimmed Savage Worlds, but I haven't gotten the chance to play it. Um, but I know that is a popular one that gets brought up. So it's something I'm going to have to spend some more time on. Absolutely. I highly recommend it. Um, well, we are at about the halfway mark. So if you would like, you can tell us a little bit about the projects that you're working on. Um, so right now, I am getting ready, as a matter of fact... Uh, about three hours from the time that we're at now, we'll be re releasing season two of Legend of the Ramble House Saints. That is an actual play video of the Giant Slayer Adventure Path made by Paizo, done, like I said earlier, with this Pathfinder for Savage Worlds rules. Uh, that campaign has just been an absolute blast, simply because all four of the people playing in it are all great personalities and they're all willing to just have a good old time doing things. Uh, that's our baby. That's the one that my friends and I all, all, but I currently expanded out or I'm currently expanding out and getting involved with other Paizo con or not Paizo Pathfinder content creators. And here on the 12th of January, we're going to have an actual play podcast of the Reign of Winter campaign played with Pathfinder First Edition. And I'm running the game. There's four other game masters. Um, two of them are from Fiend and Foil podcast. One of them is from Roll the Roll podcast. And the last player doesn't do a podcast, but she is um, pretty active in the Paizo community. So she's, she's fairly well known. And it has been recording it so far has been an absolute blast because I'm playing with four personalities that I wouldn't have played with otherwise had I not reached out and said, Hey, who wants to try this? And, uh, like our little teaser shows, what happens when four game masters actually get to play and Galarian freezes over. And oh, it, it, it is fun to have, um, all dungeon masters in a game. We'd ran a, plays in the dark one shot on the server a while back with all dungeon masters. Um, and it's just a, it's a, a different dynamic than when you have a dungeon master and then a bunch of players. It is. It's, it's been a ton of fun. Um, all four of the folks who are playing are constantly throwing out ideas and things like that on how we can improve the show. And it has just been, like I said, an absolute blast for me. We've got, two episodes in the pipe and we're going to be recording more this weekend. So 
I'm hoping everything takes off with that and really blows up, so to speak, or it goes viral, whatever the kids are saying these days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what is the, is that like a weekly that you release episodes? That will be released every Wednesday at midnight. Um, The Legend of the Rainbow House Saints is going to be every Tuesday at midnight. And we are recording ahead just to give me time to go through and post-produce everything so that way like if i have a raging coughing fit because i have sinusitis like you wouldn't believe all the time um i can go in and cut that out and people don't have to listen to me cough into the mic for five minutes so i guess on the topic of editing what tools do you use for editing the shows Um, i use xsplit to record um the xsplit broadcaster it does a great job it can record multiple channels at once including multiple video channels which is huge um For post-production, I use uh, Vegas Pro, and that allows me to add music and things like that in the background, remove quiet spots so that way it flows better. Um, And every once in a while, when I need to do something really kind of different, I use SoundForge, which is also by Magix. Um, Magix makes Vegas Pro. And that's when I really want to kind of like clean up the audio. Uh, so three major tools that I use, and it's all one big learning process. A whole set of studio quality mics and audio mixer board, um, plus studio headphones, and uh, the programs that we use. It, it, it gets expensive really quick. Um, so do you record those all kind of in-house then, or all together? In both cases, uh, we play online. So I actually record from Discord, which has its own challenges because I mean the audio on discord is all right but I usually have to do a bit of cleaning up uh, when you've got like four or five people all trying to talk at once yeah yeah that makes sense that sounds like a lot of fun though how long does it take to like record an episode and then you know take it from kind of the just the raw footage to like a completed episode episodes are typically between an hour and an hour and a half we try and keep it closer to an hour just because that seems to be the attention span of most listeners. Um, and I actually got that straight from uh, the Glass Cannon podcast guys. They were like, hey, shoot for an hour. If you go over, that's fine. If you go under, that's fine. But that's about the attention span. Um, and that was when I asked them for some advice probably a couple of years ago when I started uh, broadcasting stuff. But... The actual post-production, um, it, it really depends. Because when I do the listen-through and watch-through, if everything sounds good, I just run it through a volume normalizer to try and get everybody's voices to the right volume and call it done. But like uh, the first episode of Climate Control, I had a really bad technical error going on with Foundry, and I could not figure it out. So you've got like a five-minute stretch of me just berating the program (laughs) (laughs) that i had to cut out (laughs) that that took a little bit of extra time trying to find the exact spot i wanted to cut it at and then patch it all together and then throw the music in behind it and but i'm i mean it's been a lot of fun i definitely have enjoyed learning how to do all of this when you're recording these sessions for your show do you kind of plan them differently or do you prep them differently than you would plan for like just a home game about the only thing i do different would be a little more like uh 
setting everything up. I mean, since in both cases they're running published adventures, I like to make sure I have everything I could possibly throw at them that session ready. Uh, now, me being the OCD person that I am, I have the first two books for both adventure paths completely put into Foundry at this point, and so I don't have to do much prep other than listening to the type of music I want to get me in the right mindset before I start. And these are the ones that you said that you've run a couple of times, right? So that probably helps as well. Uh, actually, no. I had not run Giant Slayer nor uh, Reign of Winter prior to starting them for the shows. Ah, brand new. So you can't pull on any of that previous knowledge directly. Nope, just what I've read. When you are running these modules, do you, like before you've run one in this case, do you go through and kind of like skim the whole thing or read the whole thing or just read sections? How do you go about kind of figuring out the module? So I typically do a skim of all the modules in a series. Um, and if it just happens to be one, then I'll do, I'll skip that step and I'll go straight to a deep read through. Um, but when it's a series like the adventure paths are, I do a deep read through before we get into that book. Just that way I don't have too much information piled up at once and I start confusing stuff. Um, but that way I know what's coming in the future and I can kind of sort of plan for that. But still, if, if I don't do a deep read through of everything, I can make changes as I need need to as we go along. Right. It's almost even just like at the session level, you'd be reading, you'd really be reading everything then, but kind of outside of that, you just need to have a kind of a cursory knowledge of what's, what is roughly going to happen in the next couple of sessions or so. That is true. I really need to, to pick up a module and, and try to run that for some people because I tend to always just want to homebrew everything, uh, setting story. And then I usually end up getting a little bit overwhelmed um, with it. Do you have any recommendations on a module to start with? Um, unfortunately, in that instance, everything that I would have would be Pathfinder related. I'm not sure if you're a Pathfinder player at all. I am not, but I would be open to just looking at the modules just for more so for story purposes. The Rise of the Rune Lords Adventure Path by Paizo. It was the first one they created. Um, when Paizo split off of Wizards back with that debacle they called 4th Edition. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but uh, that was the first adventure path they created, and that's kind of what they built the whole world out of. So it really gives you a good idea of like the, the world-spanning um, plot. And it, Rise of the Rune Lords really is a world, span, world and time-spanning plot. And it's just a great series of adventures um, that really introduces characters to that whole narrative storytelling feel. And sure. that would be the, the first one I would go to. Well, I'm going to have to pick that up now. Um, I would probably uh, end up running maybe 5th edition, but most likely. Um, I really like the uh, index card RPG, if you're familiar with that one. Mm-hmm. Um super simple to just redo stats and stuff for her monsters and whatever. So um, I think pretty much whatever, as long as there's a story, I can make monsters and stuff fit. So that would not be too difficult. Yeah. The story is phenomenal. And what's kind of the, I assume that's kind of like a European medieval fantasy as well, or is it, well, you kind of said before it's kind of different, right? 
Yeah, um, Galarian is kind of split up into different. I, I don't really want to call them zones, but like the most common place that that a lot of adventurers play in is the land of Varesia, and it's kind of a historical land that's had a bunch of stuff happen in the past. And so everybody's kind of exploring to find out all of this information about the nations that used to be there before this cataclysm called Earthfall, when uh, the Aboleths brought a meteor down on the human nation of Aslanti and caused basically an apocalypse 10,000 years in the past. Um, but there's lots of other different types of realms out there. So like if you go to the northeast a couple thousand miles, there's a place called the World Wound where a witch opened up a permanent portal to the abyss. And so there's a holy crusade going on trying to beat back the demons and keep them from taking over Galarian. And literally right next to that, um, a few hundred miles away, is a land called, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, Numenaria, where a couple thousand years ago after Earthfall, a spacecraft of all things crashed into the planet. So you've got some like ancient high tech items there. Uh, there's a whole continent that's kind of got the Africa feel Africa and Egypt type uh, societies there. There's actually a place that is kind of based off of the United States called Andor. It's the only country in all of Galarian that has free and open elections. Um, so yeah, it, if you pick a fantasy trope, or a uh, science fantasy trope, you can definitely play it in Paizo's World of Galarian. Sure, they just have like a, just different sections of their different mm -hmm. regions that have these different kind of feels to them. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, is there more that you wanted to talk about your channel, your shows that you're doing? Uh, sure. Um, if anybody would like to check us out, you can get the direct links from our website, which is knightsofthesmithdinnertable.com. And that's all just one big word in the URL. Um, we got links to both our podcasts, the podcast versions of our shows, as well as our uh, YouTube channel, which has the actual video recording of our Legend of the Ramble House Saints. And on that, you can actually see the maps that we're using. Um, easily 95% of the maps that you see in that I put together. There's a few that I picked up here and there off the interwebs and used with the uh, permission of the various artists. But, I mean, you just, you choose which way you want to go, and we've got podcast and video play actually covered on both. That is really awesome. I'm going to have to listen to the podcast, because I always need something to listen to when I'm driving. Um, it sounds like a really fun set of shows that you guys have. We do try. Do you have a favorite encounter? Um, actually, yes. And, and this one is digging way, way deep in the past. It probably back in the nineties with the original edition of, uh, Torg or, and I don't know if you're familiar with that game system. It came out originally in the nineties, uh, put out by West End games. And it was a game where multiple realities invaded earth. So, like in Great Britain, you have the fantasy reality that invades. In Japan, you had a corporate espionage-type reality that invaded. Poor Indonesia got stuck with the Gothic Victorian-age Gothic horror. The United States was hit with, basically, uh, Land of the Lost would be the best way to describe it. So, you had all these different genres mixing together, and 
I had stolen a villain straight from the novels that they put out with the game, uh, whose name was Malcolm Kane. And I had my group of players chasing this guy literally across the world. And every time they would find him, he would pull off this huge like mass murder type effect where nobody saw him do it, but they all saw the final effects, like uh, the best one. And it actually sent some of my players home pretty disturbed was uh, they were in Atlanta chasing this guy down, trying to find him, put a stop to him because he was just causing trouble for Earth all over the place. And they hear a bunch of screams. And as they rush around the corner to see what's going on, there's a bunch of people with those. Uh, the only way I can describe them is concrete staples. Um, the big pieces of rebar that, that are bent over on oh, themselves and shoved yeah. down the concrete. Um, but there were a bunch of people just pinned to the ground with that. And this guy was rolling a steamroller over top of him. Oh, no. <laughs> and, just just the re- the visceral reaction I got from my players made me realize I had done something right. I got a reaction from the players, not the characters. Right. And suddenly it went from, oh, this is fun. Our characters are chasing this guy to, oh, no, we got to get this MFR. Like the players were saying that, not just their characters. And <laughs> they really bought into the storyline. And when they finally caught this guy and put paid to him, that was a story that even today, when I run into some of those players from that time period, they still tell. And that's been 20 years ago, more well, 25 years ago. And they so still with, tell the tell of that villain. So with that character, or in, I guess that specific event, um, did this happen after they had already had multiple encounters with him before? So they they were familiar with him, but then like this was the like icing on the cake to... This, really? this was definitely the icing on the cake because that was when I knew I had hooked them into the story that I was trying to tell. Um, it went from everybody showing up kind of happy-go-lucky to they show up and immediately they're ready in character because they want to get this guy. And I, <laughs> I stretched this out for six months of weekly sessions. So when they finally brought him down, I mean, like I said, they still tell the tale about it today. Yeah, you had a really good villain there and and obviously got them them hooked on it. So that that's a fun story to have. And you as a DM, I assume were probably like, okay, I got to keep this guy alive just a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I I had to get really creative to keep him alive because they were coming up with some of these absolutely brilliant ideas to capture this guy. I can just picture the players every time they come to the session, like, okay, we've been making these plans ahead of time as to what we're going to do to take this guy down. <laughs> yeah. And they absolutely were. Um, and that just, that made it fun on both sides because everybody was just bought into the story. They had bought into the story completely. And there was a complete and utter suspension of disbelief. And for the four hours that we played every week, they were their characters trying to catch this guy. Well, they probably gave you quite a few surprises as well too, right? Because if they're planning stuff kind of outside of the game, then you're not going to know what they're, what's going through their heads until you get to the table. Oh yeah. And like I said, I had to scramble sometimes to keep this guy alive, to, to keep the story going and to really give them the satisfaction when they finally caught this guy. So uh, what happened to the campaign after they ended up Uh, catching the villain. It ended up running for another two years. Um, 
And once they had bought into it like that, everything stayed at that level for the rest of the campaign. And then finally, um, it just life happened and I had to go out of state and a couple other people were moving away and it just generally kind of fell apart. And I mean, back in the nineties, we didn't have anything like foundry. The best we could do was play by email or play by post. And that just, for me, at least that just does not get the same feel. Well, and play by post is, is fine. If you know, if that's what you want to do, but going from like a high intensity in-person game to that would just, that would be really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And, I was sad to see it go, but I have a lot of fun memories of that campaign. So it definitely helped me grow as a game master. It's really awesome that the uh, the game didn't just end after they caught the villain, because that's kind of what I was thinking is like, oh, as soon as they catch this guy, like, what do you have, you know, next that's going to keep their interest? But th- that's awesome that you were able to keep it going for and at such a high intensity for for that long. Yeah, like I said, it taught me a lot about writing my villains. Um, and while not every villain is like this absolutely vile piece of human trash like he was, it's allowed me to branch out and create other memorable villains, uh, other memorable NPCs. One of my favorite is a goblin by the name of Scritch. Um, he was a barbarian who could not comprehend ranged weapons. So this beautiful plus one crossbow that he had he used as a club <laughs> and it just, he's one of those that when I need comic relief, I'll drag him back out just because it, it gets everybody. They like see him swinging this beautiful gold filigreed plus one crossbow at something. And they all kind of hear the nails on the chalkboard as it happens. Yeah, you just, you can just see him cringe. <laughs> no, no, that's not how you're supposed to use it. <laughs> exactly. So on writing memorable villains, um, I guess what was the biggest takeaway from that, from that first villain that we talked about as to how to make your next villains also interesting and engaging? Um, pick a trait. And I, I know that sounds kind of uh, generic, but pick a personality trait that is the primary driving force of that character. So like in his case, his was all about gaining, gaining occult power. And that's what I centered everything on him about. Uh, So everything he did, there was an occult reason for it. And each murder that he committed had to be bigger and bolder than the last. Um, Another villain I've created, it was for uh, Deadlands Hell on Earth. And his his big thing was just this, an absolute overconfident self-righteousness. And no matter what the the players did, they could not shake him from this. He was always the I'm better than you and this is why type of deal. So I always recommend picking one human personality trait and blow it out of proportion. Now, don't like stick just to that, but have that be the major driving force. And when you can focus on something like that, I have found that you can absolutely make memorable villains because you've got to give them that trait that people will remember them by. And while they don't have to be one dimensional, they kind of do for that one trait there. So that way everything works great for that villain. I've seen various people talk online about sometimes being one dimensional, especially in like movies or, or fiction, especially when it's kind of high intensity, sometimes being one dimensional is okay because like you said that is what people kind of remember about the character and it kind of gives them just this 
larger than life personality. Exactly. And I know that lots of people complain about that type of thing, but honestly, that's, that's what I have found is really digs into the players and gets them wanting and chomping at the bit and raring to go to get this bad guy and put him back in the ground. And one more question. Mm-hmm. If you could have any RPG book created, what would you put in the book? What would I put in it? Yes. Oh, um, that's a tough one. Uh, I would have to say horror rules for all occasions because horror is my favorite genre. Um, I have found I have an amazing knack for it. Uh, I scare myself sometimes. So yeah, definitely good horror rules, good fear rules, because I've only come across one or two games that have fear rules that can really dig into that visceral feeling. Fear is definitely not one that is easy to portray. And I think especially because you really have to, to, to really pull it off, you have to make your players feel it. Absolutely, yes. Which is not necessarily easily done just with mechanics. Like you can, you know, kind of emulate other things just with mechanics. Um, having an insanity meter or something doesn't always make your players feel scared, um, even though the characters are. So, yeah. And, and that's always been one of the things I kind of chafe at. I mean, like with my core group of players at this point, they will play their characters as scared or terrified or absolutely horror stricken, but that's just because they all enjoy that as well. But over the years, I mean, it's, it's hard to find a player who buys into it. Right. Yeah. I, I haven't run any horror games myself or really played in any, so I'm not, you know, super familiar with it, but I have seen that as a general consensus in the community that that is one of the more difficult um, genres to emulate with tabletop. Well, cool. I appreciate you um, coming on and doing this interview, James. Where uh, can everybody find you? Uh, you can either find us at Knights of the Smith Dinner dot com. Uh, you can search for us on Facebook uh, under Knights of the Smith Dinner Table, and then um, on Twitter we are at Knights Dinner. I believe I, I would have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure it's at night at Knights Dinner for our Twitter page. Uh, and I can I'll put the links to all your stuff in the show notes as well. So if any of the listeners are curious, uh, just head on to our show notes and you'll be able to find it there. Excellent. Well, awesome, James. I really appreciated you coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Masters Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.